due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Remember, in espionage, there's no such thing as a coincidence. Lock your doors, close the blinds, change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr. On today's episode, I'm joined by author Bradley W. Hart, and we discuss his book, Hitler's American Friends, that takes a look at Nazi influence in America before and during World War II. There's a link to Bradley's excellent book in the notes of your podcast app. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support us in a few ways. First of all, please share this podcast with your friends, family, and cohorts. Please do write a review on your favorite podcast app. Those reviews help people find the podcast. I now have a new Patreon Friends of the Podcast tier, and that's the only tier now. And if you select to do that, you'll have my undying gratitude. You'll get a free copy of my film, The Dry Cleaner. And once in a while, I will I will do my best to put a little extra in there to make it worthwhile for you. Maybe some Zoom drinks or a Q&A, maybe a behind-the-scenes look at the making of this podcast. If you do enjoy this podcast, you may like my film, The Dry Cleaner. The Dry Cleaner is available on Amazon and iTunes. It's an 18-minute contemporary spy drama written and directed by myself. So if you have a spare 18, 20 minutes and you've uh, exhausted your Netflix and Amazon Prime, check it out. And please do write a review after you've seen it. And without further ado, let's get going. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. Bradley, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm a big fan of the podcast. I'm glad to be here. Oh, thank you. It's very kind of you to say that. It's great to have you on. So um, for the benefit of listeners who are not familiar with you and your work, please can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. So I'm an associate professor at California State University, Fresno. I'm in the media communications and journalism department there. I primarily teach uh, sort of writing and research courses at Fresno State. Uh, And this book really was the outgrowth of about five years of research that I did in the early 2000s. Um, and I like to tell that story because I kind of wrote this book in a very different time. So I started working on this project back in 2014. When I was wrapping up another project on uh, the British far right, actually. And I sort of stumbled across what would become the archival basis of, of Hitler's American Friends. But when I started pitching out the idea and talking to potential publishers and agents about it, I sort of got a, a shrug. Why, why would anyone care about this history? This is uh, a bunch of extremists that are irrelevant to politics today. No one really takes them seriously anymore. So why do, would anyone want to hear about this story? When 2016 rolled around a few years later, the response was very different. Um, yeah. And I think that's partially because, undeniably, we have seen the rise of extremism around the globe. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk about that later on in the interview. But mm-hmm. I like to say at the outset of all of my interviews that I kind of wrote this book in a, in a different time and place. And... Um, if you look at some of the, the more negative reviews online of the book, which I always enjoy reading, you know, there's this sort of feeling, I think, among some reviewers that I was writing this about contemporary politics, as we see it in, yeah. in 2020, 
And in fact, I wrote the book well before that. So in some senses, I, I see those reviews as almost a badge of honor because my book was inadvertently contemporary to our moment today. Well, definitely. I mean, if anything, one of the reasons one of the chat views, there's quite a few sort of interesting parallels. And also, in some ways, this feels like a history to what we're seeing today in many respects. Well, it is. You know, I think not necessarily deliberately so. You know, I, I wrote mm. this book as a purely historical work. I mean, certainly there are some contemporary analogs to, to the period in which I wrote it, which was, you know, 2015. 15, early 2016, uh, that, that are contained in the text. But yeah, you know, I think we, we have certainly seen a reversion of international politics back towards what we were seeing in the 1930s and early 1940s. And I think that should really be disturbing to all of us, regardless of one's political views, because we are seeing this, this swing backwards in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, what is it that sort of drew you to this topic um, when you did write the book? And how did you go about researching it? Yeah, so as I mentioned, you know, this this book kind of came about accidentally. Um, so I did my PhD at the University of Cambridge in 2011 on the international eugenics movement. So this movement of essentially trying to create a, a better race as the eugenicists saw it. And of course, this um, scientific movement gets picked up by the Nazis and taken in a, in a horrendous direction. But we need to remember, of course, that this was a truly international movement. Actually, Great Britain was the initial center of it. So in the course of that research, I was looking into a lot of, of obviously people on the political extremes, especially the, the far right in the 1940s, who become associated with, with the Third Reich. Um, and as part of that, I sort of stumbled across this underground world of not only far-right extremists in the way that we would see them today, but as people who really worked to further the aims of the Third Reich. And of course, that involves people who worked in the intelligence community um, and had associations with the Abwehr and with uh, the Gestapo in some cases, but also people who, who worked as, as double agents and worked to try to counter German influence, um, British security coordination based out of New York City, and of course, the FBI here in the United States. And so I really came across this accidentally digging through the archival record, um, primarily at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, where I came across some notebooks related to the surveillance of the German-American movement, one of these biggest organizations. And when I came across these files, they were literally these handwritten notes, which I found out later this particular FBI informant and journalist had stuffed into his shirt sleeves when he was infiltrating the Bund. I knew I was onto a story that had to be told. Um, and the other thing that surprised me when I started researching this was that really nothing had been written on it. Um, looking back a couple of years later now, other historians have, have glommed on to this. And certainly, um, you know, I want to think at least that I, I helped <laughs> get this story out there to some extent. But there's been quite a bit more research on it. I think people are more familiar with the story now than they were three or four years ago. Um, so, you know, I think that, that kind of accidentally I stumbled across this sort of under-examined point in 20th century history that, that has inadvertently become more relevant, I would say, than ever before. One thing that comes clear across in your book, and it it's probably quite obvious, but anti-Semitism was one of the, the big things that united all of, sort of Hitler's friends in America. Can you just give us a, a sort of brief, I suppose, um, guide to anti-Semitism in America kind of before the war? Yeah, this is, I think, one of the more troubling, if not the most troubling thing that I discovered in the course of the research, just how widespread and deep-seated anti-Semitism was in the United States. Um, and elsewhere as well, obviously. I mean, Great Britain has a, a dark underbelly yeah. of anti-Semitism that goes back centuries, um, to yes, back to the expulsion yeah. of the Jews in the Middle Ages. Yeah. Um, so, so really, you know, I, I found that the American anti-Semitism had a couple of different facets. Um, there was certainly an anti-immigrant sentiment that not only cut against Jews, but other groups as well, obviously. Um, but in the 1930s and 40s, there was also the emergence of, of 
what I kind of saw as a as a modern form of anti-Semitism. Now, this was partially based on on the teachings and ideology of the Third Reich, where it was, was borrowed from. But this view that Jews were not only an alien race or religion, just sort of classical anti-Semitism, or or somehow opposed to, to Christianity, that goes back to the Middle Ages. But in this modern version, there's really this view that Jews are an imminent threat to the national security of the United States or, or Britain or whatever country we're talking about. Uh, and this really begins to take hold, I think, with the onset of the Great Depression. And you have figures like Father Charles Coughlin in the U.S., this very important radio minister who uh, starts out as a supporter of Franklin Roosevelt, believes that the Roosevelt administration should take drastic economic action to solve the Great Depression. Um, and then Coughlin, after Roosevelt becomes president, pivots very heavily into criticizing uh, what he sees as the Jewish-run banks, as organizations that are are basically attempting to take over the world, in his view. And he spreads this hateful message to his 20-plus million American listeners on a weekly basis. And so you really see this explosion of, of deep-seated hate, I think, against, against uh, Jewish immigrants and, and Jewish people generally. Uh, the other thing we have to remember is that sort of casual anti-Semitism has a long history in the United States. Um, even in the post-war period, up until actually relatively recently, it was perfectly legal in some parts of the country to exclude Jews from country clubs or exclude Jews even from living in certain neighborhoods using what we call restrictive covenants. So, so this is a really deep-seated form of prejudice. And, and again, what I found was that in, in the 30s and 40s, not, this goes from being a sort of background noise, if you will, of anti-immigrant sentiment, becoming this really active and virulent ideology to the extent that you have Jews actually being physically attacked on the streets of major cities in a way that, that unfortunately we have seen again emerge in the past few years with the, the terrible rash of attacks on synagogues um, that, have, that have claimed lives. I mean, the worst anti-Semitic attack in American history took place only about a year ago. Um, and so I think, you know, this is a, a form of prejudice that we all really have to be aware of and have to be aware of how insidious it can be. Mm, no, definitely. So Hitler's American friends thought that they would actually help Hitler by establishing their own version of Nazism in the US. But Hitler himself was a little bit less hopeful about this. So what was Hitler's key desire with regards to America and those who supported him in the US? So Hitler's desire is very simple. From Berlin's perspective, the objective is to keep the US out of World War II. Right. I mean, once the war starts in September of 1939, there's this realization that if, if America enters the war as it had done in 1917, then, then Germany will almost certainly lose. I mean, it becomes almost an inevitability in that sense. And they're not wrong about that. I mean, if you look at the history of the Second World War, when the U.S. enters in, in late 41 and really gets underway in early 42, um, the tide of the war changes, certainly in Europe. And that's partially because of the success of the Soviet Union. But American industry helps with that, with the Lend-Lease program and other things. So, so Hitler's objective is straightforward. I mean, you, you raise a great point that, that I talk a lot in this book about people who want to emulate the Third Reich in the United States. Hitler himself isn't sure that's possible. Um, and, and the simple explanation for that is that Hitler is a racist, um, which seems like an obvious statement. But Hitler looks at the United States. He looks at the diversity that's present in the U.S. He looks at the large Jewish American population um, and says that, that Nazism won't work there. It's simply too diverse. Uh, it will be undermined. Now, he also has a great disdain for, for what he sort of refers to as Americanism, um, what we would call in the United States individualism or, or liberal democracy or something like that. <laughs> uh, but for Hitler, this is a weakness. And so Hitler thinks that the U.S. will inevitably collapse because of, because of these factors. 
but he doesn't think that the Nazism, which of course he sees as the savior of Germany, can ever really work in the U.S. And so there's this this weird tension that that plays throughout my book, I think, between the objectives of Hitler's American friends to build something like the Reich in America uh, and Hitler's own sort of skepticism towards this project, which I think is very interesting. Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, yeah, looking at your book and the people who were very pro-Hitler, I don't think they really quite grasped it from Hitler's point of view. It's quite interesting. It is. And and Hitler himself is is deeply worried in some cases, especially when we talk about groups like the German-American boon, that that these folks are not only an embarrassment, but they actually might end up dragging the U.S. into the war. And Mm -hmm. at various points, the German foreign ministry sort of contacts these American figures and says, tone it down a little bit. Stay out of the newspapers for a while. You're going to get us into trouble here. Um, And that has varying degrees of success. But but Berlin is actually much more skeptical towards these folks than they are about themselves. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's have a look at some of these groups. So we'll start with the German-American Bund. So who were they and sort of where did it start and what was their relationship with Nazi Germany? Yeah, so the the German-American Bund is a, it's essentially what we would call today a cultural heritage organization, or at least Mm. that's its public persona. So it is originally formed uh, in the early 1930s. Actually, there's some precursors in the 1920s um, by German-American immigrants who have moved to the United States and want to preserve their heritage, their language, um, and as will become important later, pass this on to their children. So ostensibly, this is an organization that is separate from the German embassy. Um, It's formed in 1936 and is headed by uh, a man named Fritz Kuhn, who is himself an immigrant from Germany um, who comes out after the First World War. He fought on the side of the German military, actually won the Iron Cross, so a fairly distinguished career. Um, moves to Mexico during the hyperinflation, eventually moves to the U.S. where he works for the Ford Motor Company. Uh, some, some of your listeners may know that, that this is somewhat uh, apropos because Henry Ford himself has some, some particularly pro-Nazi views. Uh, and we don't really know whether that's relevant to his employment of Kuhn because Ford is hiring tons of immigrants to work in the Ford Motor Company. Um, and in fact, Kuhn gets fired from that job because the management finds him practicing his pro-Nazi political speeches while he's on the clock. So this, this ends his job as a chemist for the Ford Motor Company. It yeah. leads to his, his, his full, what becomes his full-time job of leading the German-American boom. So the boom is organized really in the upper Midwest. It has a, an opulent headquarters in New York City where it has most of its members. Um, but they have chapters all over the country. Uh, we think that there's probably between twenty and 30,000 paid-up members. So membership actually costs money. But then probably hundreds of thousands of people that are, are sympathizers or go to its events... Um, there are some people, there are actually different levels of membership. And so this is not an insubstantial organization. There's been a tendency of historians to say, you know, these are a bunch of clowns because they march around in, in Nazi-esque uniforms and they have weird ranks that, that emulate the SA and the SS. Um, I don't think it's irrelevant. I mean, I think this is, this is a group that is certainly reflecting an, an underbelly, if you will, of American, especially German-American immigrant society. So in the late 1930s, the boon becomes nationally known because it has these opulent parades. And as we find out in the United States, uh, they also have summer camps for children. Now, these are not summer camps in the way that many listeners will be familiar, or actually in some ways they are, except that you're learning how to speak German, um, sing the praises of Hitler, salute the swastika, 
um, all of these sort of elements of Nazi racial ideology. So, so a, a reporter who I mentioned earlier, John C. Metcalf is his name, uh, actually infiltrates the Bund in the late 1930s. He becomes one of Kuhn's right-hand men, which is a good indication that the, the operational security of the Bund is not great. This guy literally walks in, has enough time to dedicate to, to this organization and becomes one of Kuhn's trusted lieutenants. I mean, it's, it's not great, uh, it's sort of, it, you know, security in that sense. Um, Metcalf exposes what the Bund is doing in a series of, of newspaper articles in 38. Um, and, and really, this causes a sensation. Kuhn is hauled up to Capitol Hill. He has to answer some awkward questions. Uh, but the U.S. government can't find anything to, to really get him for. He's not violating the law. Having sort of creepy summer camps isn't illegal. Um, there's some indication that they are, are buying large quantities of weapons and training with them. But that's legal as well, potentially. Second Amendment rights in the U.S. So, so Kuhn becomes this sort of pariah figure for a lot of Americans. He was widely known because he was sort of a, a larger-than-life figure, um, was seen in the newsreels quite a lot, was seen in the front pages, um, a, a hate figure for many Americans. I mean, many people obviously were very concerned about him. Um, and he's internationally known as well, obviously. He plays in the Nazi press to some extent, though the Germans are skeptical that he is kind of a loose cannon. Um, so Kuhn's biggest moment comes in 1939, amidst all this controversy, when he holds a absolutely gigantic rally in Madison Square Garden in New York City. More than 20,000 people in attendance, two or three times as many people protesting outside. The New York City Police Department trapped in between battling um, sort of these armed boomed members uh, who are armed with clubs and things like that, and, and protesters who are understandably upset. Um, and this thing becomes a, a absolute um, fiasco, really, for everyone involved. It becomes really a, a pseudo riot. There's a great, by the way, Oscar-nominated short film about this. I, I encourage your viewers to check out um, called "Night at the Garden" a few years ago. Um, but but really restores this footage and shows just how disturbing this was. So this this event takes place. There's violence that emerges from it, and after this, the government has to crack down on coup. So yeah. uh, the New York City. Um, or the New York State District Attorney opens up an investigation to make a long story short, finds that Kuhn has been skimming money from the boon to pay for his multiple mistresses across the country. <laughs> um, and he ends up going to prison. And so there's this, yeah. this great irony that this, this man who presents himself as a future American Fuhrer ends up sitting in Sing Sing prison for the duration of World War II because he's personally corrupt. And so I think this is a theme that really plays out throughout my book, that you have these what were referred to at the time as the mini Fuhrers or the wannabe Fuhrers. And many of them are just sort of personally degenerate or personally corrupt and in it for their own interests. And so, you know, the Bund, uh, you know, it, it wasn't an entirely forgotten group until I looked into it. Other historians had looked at it, but I think it's really an organization that deserves even more of a look than I was going to give it. Yeah. And what was the sort of membership numbers we were looking at with that group? So, so the membership, it, it's, kind of difficult to know because there's different levels of membership. There's some people you have to actually pay to be a member during the mm. depression. That's tough for a lot of people, especially people who are from immigrant backgrounds. So it's, it's roughly 20,000 paid up members. We think at its peak, uh, obviously some members come and go, but then you have these other classes of people that are sort of associate members, sympathizers, people who turn up at rallies. Kuhn himself actually estimates that he is above 100,000 sort of support, yeah. quote unquote supporters at some point. So this is, this is not an insubstantial number in a period where the country is 150 million people. I mean, it's not huge. It's smaller percentage wise than the British Union of Fascists under Oswald, Oswald Mosley was. Um, but this is still a group that, that in its geographic strongholds in places like Milwaukee, um, the upper Midwest, New York City, it can still do serious damage, especially when you, when you, 
imagine that a lot of these members were, were willing to commit violence and in fact did in some cases. Mm-hmm. And as we were saying earlier, the anti-Semitism, so the, the Bund, they saw uh, Zionism as an infectious disease gnawing at the core of American politics and socio-economic life. That was their their worldview effectively, wasn't it? It is. And and what's, what's disturbing about the Bund is they try to combine the identity, their identity as American immigrants mm. um, and as Americans with their identity as, as Nazi emulators. And so in Kuhn's 1939 speech, the most inflammatory thing he says is that if George Washington were alive today, he would be a Nazi. And so there's this, this, this sort of deliberate evocation, if you will, of the symbols of Americanism. And of course, the, the Boone's flag itself is, is the swastika combined with the American flag. And so I think for, for a lot of, of listeners out there, uh, when you watch shows like Man in the High Castle or um, The Plot Against America, you know, I, I'm always sort of impressed watching those shows because the producers, I don't know if they've read my book or not. I hope they have. Um, but they've done a good job, I think, getting the feeling that these groups try to put forward of, of combining the symbols of Americanism and Nazism together and had, you know, had history gone very differently, and, and we should be horror, we should be very grateful it didn't. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. But had there been something like that that took power in the U.S., I think those symbols would have been exactly what they would have used. You have kept that veneer of Americanism and combined it in the same way that Kuhn tried to do. Yeah, it is fascinating how to kind of do that and appeal to uh, patriotism and, and things like that. Um, whilst uh, yeah, they're sort of fusing these sort of different ideas together, and, and we'll go into it a little bit later as well. Like the interesting, the role of religion comes into it as well. But uh, we'll touch upon that in a bit so let's move on to the next uh, fun group <laughs> um there's the the silver legion and its founder is it william dudley pelly uh could you tell us a bit about about him and and the group so pelly and the silver legion was one of the stranger groups that i encountered in this book mm-hmm. uh, pelly is a really interesting guy he, he actually starts out as as a journalist he uh, covers the first world war from actually the asian side he ends up going to japan um, and then ends up sort of in the Soviet Union as the Russian Civil War is going on. And this gives him a, a very heavily anti-communist perspective. And that's a theme that, that underpins, you know, we'll probably talk about it later on mm. in the interview, but anti-communism is really what binds all these groups together besides anti-Semitism. Yeah. And that's yeah. something that obviously becomes prominent after the World War as well. Um, so Pelle becomes this virulent anti-communist. He also um, becomes an anti-Semite. So he combines these things together and believes that communism is a Jewish plot. So sort of covers the Russian Revolution from the Siberian side of things. Uh, not very pleasant, I'm sure. Goes back to Hollywood, actually, after the war, um, after a brief writing career, and becomes a Hollywood screenwriter. So this is the era of the uh, silent films in Hollywood, and apparently he becomes quite successful. Amasses a small fortune for himself, um, and apparently has a pretty good time personally. Talks about in his later accounts how he enjoyed the pleasures of the flesh and things like that. And I mention that not just to be salacious, but because this becomes actually something that Pelly talks about as a transformative experience, because he sort of has this fortune as a, a young man. He's actually divorced at that point. Young man about town. You can imagine how fun Hollywood is in that period. And then one day sort of gives it all up and decides this isn't a satisfying lifestyle for him, moves up into the hills above Hollywood, and one night has what he sees as a religious conversion. Now, this is not a religious conversion in the way that a lot of people talk about today. (laughs) This is a conversion to to the occult. And so he believes that he's been, I think what we would say today is abducted by aliens, in essence, Um, goes into some sort of other dimension, and, and there is revealed the secrets of the universe. And from this period on in his life, Dudley will claim to have some sort of connection to the great beyond. 
And so he claims that after this experience in the late 1920s, he can actually communicate with um, deceased prominent Americans. So at one point, he claims to be talking to George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, but also with Jesus Christ himself. And so he claims that in one of his, his seances in the early 1930s, um, Jesus himself tells Pelly that when a young painter in Germany uh, takes control of the country, that Pelly is to form an American version of that movement. Now, of course, Pelly reports this after Adolf Hitler has taken power in 1933. So probably it's not a real vision at all. Um, but after Hitler takes power, Pelly founds what's called the Silver Legion. So you can imagine, I mean, even from what I've said, this is a, a larger-than-life figure. Um, you know, I, I encourage the listeners to, to Google up some images of Pelly. He looks, you know, really compelling. He's got this sort of silver goatee, this very Hollywood hair, and all of his appearances, chewing on a pipe all the time. Uh, he's, he's kind of a dynamic leader. And so the Silver yeah. Legion begins to take off under Pelly's um, leadership. Um, with this bizarre sort of combination of, of Nazi racial ideas and what Pelly presents as Christian economics. Now, Christian economics is, is ironically kind of a form of collectivism, so some, somewhat related to, to communist uh, ideas. But Pelly designs the system to be based on racial hierarchy. And so he says that in his future Christian commonwealth, um, African-Americans will be disenfranchised and reduced basically back to slavery. Um, Jewish people will be confined to, uh, to ghettos, and he will appoint a secretary of Jewry to deal with the Jewish question. I mean, this is bizarre stuff, yeah. but it begins yeah. to attract a nationwide following. So in 1936, Pelley actually runs for president as, a, as an outlandish third-party candidate, gets on the ballot only in Washington state, which becomes a boon sort of center of activity, and he gets a few thousand votes. But after 36, Pelley is a nationwide figure. And so you begin to see Silver Legion chapters springing up across the country. Um, his membership never really ex gets close to the German-American boons. It's probably a tenth the size. But Pelly's supporters are heavily armed. Um, Pelly tells them to prepare for racial war. Later on, tells them that if Germany invades the United States, they will fight on the side of the Nazis and, and essentially sees himself as a potential Hitler figure in the U.S. And so in some ways, the Silver Legion becomes this, this really kind of adjacent organization to the Ku Klux Klan, which, of course, has a monopoly on sort of violence and racism in the American South. Um, and Pelly tries to build that up outside the South. Uh, his supporters wear white uniforms with a big silver or big scarlet L over their hearts. So they're instantly recognizable. Uh, and so in the 1930s, this, this organization becomes a group of serious concern to the U.S. government. Um, FDR asked the attorney general to investigate them. Uh, local organization or local law enforcement begin cracking down on them. But this is difficult to do because Pelly supporters, again, are armed. And I quote an amazing account in, in my book about, um, I think it was a town in, in either Oregon or Washington state, where Pelly comes to town with this sort of entourage of 50 armed guards. And the local sheriff says, you have to disarm if you're going to come into our town. And Pelly says, make us. And it's, it, I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's the kind of old West threat that actually, if you're a local police chief, you can't really force these guys to disarm and mm. carry around shotguns and things like that. Mm. So Pelly becomes this sort of very frightening Nazi emulating figure. He's, he's very much aware that he um, is emulating Hitler, writes favorably about his anti-Semitism, obviously, given his own views. Um, and much like Fritz Kuhn and the Boone will eventually be brought down by his own corruption. So to make a long story short, uh, when, when Kuhn, or sorry, when, Pelly had founded the Legion. He had actually ruled a few of his other companies. He'd been a, he had owned some publishing companies. 
um, into a larger organization that then became the Silver Legion sort of commercial arm. Uh, unfortunately, he had already sold shares in those companies to individuals who had invested in it. And so what it turns out uh, Pelly has done is actually defrauded his shareholders. So in 1939-1940, Pelly is forced to go on the run, uh, apparently hides out with some of his local chapters across places like Indiana and the upper Midwest, uh, and eventually turns himself into the law to face a suspended prison sentence. And so, and again, another example of these Hitler emulators who, who come to power and national prominence in the late 1930s are ultimately and fortunately brought down by their own, uh, by their own perfidy and own corruption. So... I think, you know, the, the, the Legion is a, is a fascinating example of, of how, you know, not necessarily religion, but sort of this mystical element of, mm. of Nazism really gets imbued into the American context as well. Yeah. And what was interesting in this one as well, Pelly tried to recruit a, a Native American, a man named Elwood A. Towner, who became chief of Red Cloud. Can you tell us a little bit about him and that, that, that connection? That was really interesting. Yeah. I mean, this is another one of these sort of bizarre figures that comes into prominence in, in the 1930s. So, so Towner is, is an attorney, actually, um, mm. of, of Native American ancestry. And, and he's sort of attracted to, to Pelly's movement because Pelly, and I think this, this is where you can sort of see the Hollywood screenwriter side of Pelly. I mean, this is a guy who is a Attention for drama. Um, but, you know, Hollywood Westerns are quite popular in the 1920s, obviously. And so Towner is attracted to Pelly because Pelly argues that, that Native Americans were actually the first Aryans. And so he gives them a special place in his sort of future Christian Commonwealth, whatever you want to call it. Um, so Towner comes into Pelly's movement and begins giving public speeches dressed as very stereotyped sort of Hollywood Native American outfit. I mean, terrible stuff. But he's wearing this, this stereotyped outfit with red swastikas on it, talking in, even though he speaks perfect English, he's an attorney, in these, this broken, stereotyped um, Hollywood accent, talking about how Native Americans were the first Aryans and ancient Jews came to North America and ruined them and stole their land and things like that. And this is where you get into other classic forms of anti-Semitism, um, tropes about um, you know slave trading and, and things like that. But, but this is what Towner plays upon. And he's actually featured in Life magazine at one point. He's profiled in a photo spread as this sort of bizarre Native American fascist. Um, Pelly himself actually at one point tries to present himself as a leader of America's Native American population. So he says that he's, he's chief Pelly of the tribe of silver. And he tries <laughs> to write in this very like stereotyped Hollywood Native American accent. Um, but I think what, what's interesting is that, you know, while this episode is entertaining, it shows that Pelly really has a penchant for understanding potential recruits. I mean, Native Americans, have, of course, been horrendously treated by the U.S. government. This is still a period in which, Native American children are taken from their families and put into reformatories and things like yeah, that. So, yeah. so Pelly senses that this is a group that has genuine grievances and he wants to capitalize on it. I should say there is no evidence whatsoever this was successful. There's no evidence that Native Americans flocked to the Silver Legion at all. But it's interesting that he, he and, and Towner went down this really bizarre rabbit hole for a while. Yeah, yeah. One random question. What was Pelly's sort of uh, penchant for the color silver? It's a good question. I'm not sure we know. You know, I think if you look at the history of this era, you see a lot of, of sort of quote unquote color movements, right? So the Nazis are the black shirts or the brown shirts. Well, they're, they're the brown shirts. Uh, the black shirts are um, uh, Mussolini supporters. And then you have the black shirts in the UK. Um, and so you have sort of these, these colored shirt movements erupting all over the world. I think part of that is just to make them 
distinct, obviously, yeah. so you can see their supporters easily. There's also sort of, sort of paramilitary element to it, too. I mean, there's obviously a lot of veterans after the First World War who are running around at this point um, who are sort of respond well to this military imagery. And so I think it's more that than anything else. Uh, the German-American Boone has a uniform, actually. It has a mandated uniform that Fritz Kuhn himself designed that, that's very paramilitary. Um, I think in the British case, it's interesting, right? One of the, the major crackdowns when they're cracking down on Mosley's movement, one of the first things they do is ban the public display of paramilitary uniforms. And mm-hmm. so this is really a key part of, of fascism. Um, and when you take away that, that visual appeal, um, this is really a major blow against these movements. Yeah. So um, we touched upon it a bit earlier about the relationship between religion and uh, Nazism. So can you talk to us a bit about sort of how the religious right sympathetic view towards Nazi Germany and then how they went on to use sort of radio to spread their beliefs? Because it's quite an interesting sort of period. That. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one thing I should I should say at the outset about mm. that is, is there's been some questions to why I refer to them as a religious right. Because this is really a, more, a later 20th century term than, than a contemporary term. Um, I do that because... All of these groups that I sort of look at thought of themselves as being on the political right. Um, if you think of the political landscape of the time, the left was was socialism and communism, um, and the right is the opposition of that movement. Now, ironically, you know, and this is sort of a rabbit hole of its own, um, Hitler himself is, is a national socialist. So socialism is baked into the title. But it's important for us to remember that this, this is actually the terrain that they saw themselves on, regardless mm-hmm. of what we think about that looking like today. This is how they saw themselves. Um, so, so in the United States in the 1920s and 30s, this, this is a highly religious society, but it's, it's not religious in, in a traditional sort of European or British sense. It's, it's religious in an evangelical sense. And this is sort of a uniquely American um, phenomenon. And so, so sort of what people realize in the 1920s when radio begins to emerge as a major medium is that this is a great way to reach unlimited audiences, potentially. And it's also a great way to not only spread your message, but also make money and build yourself into a larger movement. So the first real person who realizes this is Father Charles Cox, who interestingly is a Roman Catholic priest. So he's not an evangelical at all. But he begins to buy radio time on his, on his local radio station in Michigan, um, partially as a way to counter the influence of the Ku Klux Klan, which was heavily anti-Catholic. So it starts out as, as really this, this sort of mission of tolerance of trying to make, create understanding of what Catholicism is, the Catholics aren't enemies, and it very quickly becomes political. So when Coghlan begins to become successful and starts reaching audiences beyond his local community, um, he begins to realize that the more political he gets, the more successful he becomes. And so by the mid-1930s, Coghlan has pivoted from talking about um, you know Catholicism and traditional religion to talking about politics. So he's talking about the need for the Roosevelt administration to go to a, a bimetallism system, so minting money with both silver and gold, you know, a, a big controversy of the era. He's talking about later on the supposed Jewish control of banks and things like that with this heavily anti-Semitic mm-hmm. aspect. And what's what's troubling about Coughlin is that he has a huge audience. I mean, he's the largest radio audience in American history. He's on on Sunday afternoons. He's reaching, we think, about 25 million Americans at his wow. peak in a country of wow. 150 million. So a huge percentage of the population, whether they agreed with him or not, they were listening to this guy. Mm. Um, But also with this combination of politics with with religious message. And so in the late 1930s, Coughlin becomes an extremely controversial figure. I mean, certainly the the national security apparatus starts looking into whether he's connected to Nazi Germany. 
Uh, interestingly, I looked at the German side of this story as well. The Germans see him as one of their greatest assets in the U.S. because of his anti-Semitism, because he's willing to openly defend the regime using religious terminology. Of course, Germany has a lot of Catholics itself. Um, and, and they think about actually giving him support, using their intelligence network in the U.S. to, to help Coughlin. And they decide not to do that because they think he's more effective left on his own. Yeah. If German support were, were known for Coughlin, then that might damage his message. Uh, and so you have this this really sort of dangerous phenomenon where you have this combination of, of open defense of Nazism, of deep anti-Semitism, and the veneer of, of Catholicism in this case. Um, we should say as well that Cogman's audience is actually not overwhelmingly Catholic. He has this incredible crossover appeal. Um, and then because of his success, you start to see emulators. So one of the most sort of troubling that I found was Gerald B. Winrod who is a, a Kansas evangelical, so a slightly different appeal, who sort of sees Coughlin's success, I think, in the late 19, 1920s, early 1930s, starts buying up radio time on his local channels, on his local stations, and soon is, is distributed all over the U.S. So this is a period of time when you can just, I mean, as you could today, just buy this time and get on stations. What both these guys do quite successfully, then, is ask their listeners to send them money. So Coughlin has what he calls the League of the Little Flower which is mm. the name of his shrine, of his, of his church in uh, Michigan. And people send in, you know, a dollar or something, some, some fairly small sum, but it, by the Great Depression standards even, um, and they get a membership badge. And this is their not only outward sort of sign that they're following this guy, but also it provides him obviously with financial support. Jeremy Winrod does the same thing. In 1938, tries to translate his nationwide sort of presence into a run for the United States Senate in the state of Kansas. And, you know, what's remarkable about this is that, that Winrod has made a name for himself by saying that Hitler is the greatest Christian leader of all time. He actually goes to Nazi Germany, um, visits with the Third Reich's dignitaries um, a couple of years before this, comes back and starts giving sermons around the country where he says that Hitler's a great Christian, he's protecting the church from communism, all of this stuff. Um, so in 1938, Winrod tries to run for the Senate. Um, he's actually the front runner for the Republican nomination at that point. Uh, and the National Republican Party steps in and becomes very concerned, understandably, that this this sort of Nazi sympathizer is leading the pack for the nomination uh, and convinces a former governor to run for Senate against Winrod, really at the last yeah. moment, uh, who ends up winning the nomination and winning the election. So it's this really dangerous moment, as I, as I point out in the book, where you could have had, had the Republican Party not done that, you could have ended up with an open Nazi sympathizer in the U.S. Senate in 1939, which, you know, who knows how that might have influenced history, what controversies that might have led to, and whether that would have led to, to other emulators across the country trying to follow in his footsteps. But, but I think, you know, as, as we talked about with, with the Boond and the Silver Legion, um, what Coughlin and Winrod really are doing is combining these identities together. They're saying you can be a, a good Christian, a good Catholic, a good evangelical, and also be a Nazi. And that's what really becomes their appeal. And that's why I think these guys in some ways are the most dangerous of, of all of the groups that I looked at in the book. Mm. And I think, you know, I haven't got any major examples to mind, but I think that idea does still exist in the far right, doesn't it? This sort of weird kind of version of Christianity and, and sort of far right ideals. It's, um, yeah, it's very strange. Absolutely. No, I think this, this is something that's essential to understand about fascism itself, mm. right? So, so fascism, the, the entire premise of fascism is basically a story of history. Mm. So every, every fascist says, 
the country was great at some time. It had this, this you know, it obviously mysticized past. In, in Mosley's case, it was the Middle Ages, right? You know, the time of King Arthur and things like that. Uh, in Germany's case, it was the ancient Germanic tribes, either the Romans, um, you know. So there's this, this mythological past that was great. Something happened. Usually this, this part of the story involves something about Jewish people coming in and ruining it. Um, the country fell into decadence. It was defeated, in their case, the First World War. And then the leader comes along and is going to restore the greatness back in that sense. And you can see how religion plays into that, mm-hmm. right? This idea that, that the religion, in the Nazis' case, the ancient German religion, in Winrod's case, ancient Christianity, these were the religions that were lost and destroyed, and we have to go back to those things. So, so it's really kind of a hand-in-glove relationship. Mm-hmm. Now, with Colin, he did sort of fall foul of some of the leaders of the, of, of the church, and he was apparently in violation of Vatican regulations, and that made it difficult for him to sort of spread his views beyond beyond that time. Is that right? Yeah, so, so Coughlin is, is obviously moving beyond the, the scope of the general parish priest by the yeah. 1930s. I mean, he's, he's definitely in the political Fear. He had previously had in the 1920s and early 30s, he had a sympathetic um, archbishop in his mm. in his diocese that protected him effectively and thought that he was actually spreading Catholicism through this increasingly political speech. Um, that bishop actually dies uh, in the late 1930s, and the church hierarchy at that point steps in and says, "Hold on, this is not really." helpful. Um, and so we want we want to have first right of review on your speeches. Mm. So Coghlan ends up in sort of a protracted fight with the Vatican itself, actually. There's some evidence that, that the Vatican hierarchy in, in Rome was involved in this. Um, and the compromise I come to is that Coghlan can keep his radio program as long as he doesn't delve into politics directly, which Coghlan basically ignores, and the church hierarchy orders him into silence. And so by the 1940 election, which is this critical moment in American history where and we forget this today, FDR easily could have lost that election in 1940. Um, Coglin is no longer on the air. And I think this is an important bit of timing that the Catholic Church steps into this moment in the presidential election year when the Second World War has started and says, you're gone. We, we can't have this associated with us anymore. And Coglin, I mean, this is one of the more remarkable things. He lives until the 1970s and is just completely off the radar. Um, he retired. He apparently makes a bunch of money in real estate speculation around Michigan, um, which, you know, one of the great lines I have in my book is that in one of his obituaries, um, an obituary writer comments that Father Coughlin was not part of an order that demanded poverty. Uh, and this is very true because Coughlin becomes rich off of his off of his radio program and his real estate speculation, retires to, Flo- retires to Arizona, I should say. Um, and towards the end of his life, starts giving interviews where he says the Second World War was the greatest mistake in human history. Um, we shouldn't have gotten into it. Communism was the great victor here. So he's silent for decades, but but apparently never changes his views, never changes his views about the origins of the war, and is completely unapologetic. And that's true of a lot of these figures as well. Was it one of his competitors, Gerald Smith? You you mentioned he could have carried on Hitler's torch beyond the beyond the war, didn't he? Yeah, so, so Gerald L.K. Smith is this, is this fascinating figure. He's initially part of the Huey Long machine down in Arizona, which is another fascinating part of American history that I talk about only a little bit. But Huey Long was you know, assassinated in 1936 um, on the streets of the Louisiana Street, uh, State Capitol, but was seen as potentially a, a fascist himself and, and sort of a fascist leaning leader. So we, would, we never know, we will never know what would have happened had Long lived. Yeah. But Smith starts out as this sort of evangelical minister in the, in the Huey Long machine, um, gets into a power struggle with Long's lieutenants after his death, and then takes a show on the road 
um, giving these speeches denouncing Eleanor Roosevelt as a female Rasputin, claiming that Jews are running the Roosevelt administration. I mean, this is really vicious stuff. Um, and so he's sort of one of these other figures that tries to combine Christianity with this very pronounced fascist orientation. Uh, I mean, Smith is younger than these other figures. After the war, just continues on with this, really. I mean, becomes this sort of pro-segregation, openly racist, well, creates an organization called the Cross and the Flag. I mean, very clear what that, what that, what the orientation of this is, um, and is, is still spreading this stuff around until he dies. Um, you know, in the latter half of the 20th century. So, so you know, that's an important part of this. There, there really is, and this is sort of where my research is probably going next. But there's a direct lineage between these groups in the 30s and and these groups that that assume the mantle after the war. And yeah. I think that's something we have to keep in mind too. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think that's definitely a topic for another podcast. That's a very interesting <laughs> uh, part of history yeah. and uh, contemporary history. Um, so we, we sort of touched upon it before, but there, politically there were fierce battles going on between isolationists and interventionist politicians in the years leading up to America joining the war. And there's one man in particular, George Sylvester Virick, I think I got his name right, um, who was trying to influence senators on sort of behalf of Nazi Germany. So can you tell us a little bit about him and his activities? Absolutely. So we have to remember, as you said, that America was deeply divided in this period. I argue that, that this division was in some ways even deeper than the division that happens in the 1960s over the Vietnam War. Because I think it's more, the, the division in the 1930s was more about the history of the United States and the spirit, if you will, of the U.S. than the Vietnam division was. Um, and there's some interesting parallels there, too, because people fall on different sides of that later on. Um, but in the 1930s, there was this, this view that the United States had been tricked into World War I by the British, that the U.S. had shed all this blood and treasure for no good outcome, and that the U.S. should, first and foremost, avoid going into another world war. There's no reason to allow American boys to die in the muddy trenches of Europe again, effectively. And this was probably a majority view, I would argue. Up, up until probably 1937, 38. I mean, the polling is, is tough. You know, there's not a lot of reliable polling, but a lot of Americans think this. And so the Germans realize that this is probably where they have the greatest influence in the United States. So they dispatch an agent named George Sylvester Burek, who is himself American. He had been a propagandist for the Kaiser during the First World War. He had uh, actually fallen afoul of the Treasury Department, who realized that he was taking money from the German embassy and barely kept himself out of prison. Uh, for essentially aiding the enemy. Um, fortunately for him, he was doing all that before the U.S. was actually in the war. So they couldn't accuse him of treason. Um, so in the 1930s, Vierek becomes convinced that Hitler is the savior of Germany. Same thing a lot of these folks think. Um, goes off to Berlin, cuts a deal with the foreign ministry that he will disseminate propaganda within the United States through what we would call elite channels today. So rather than go for a popular audience, Virek decides to target U.S. senators and representatives that fall on the isolationist side of the spectrum. It's an extremely clever move because there's a lot of these figures. They often come from German-American constituencies. Mm -hmm. so they have actually a political benefit to trying to um, sort of toe this anti-war line. Yeah. Um, so so Virek gets essentially open line of credit from the German embassy in Washington, D.C., um, begins contacting isolation senators and representatives and quite simply sets up shop in the U.S. Capitol. Uh, he actually has a desk in a U.S. senator's office um, uh, named Ernest Lundin, who's a senator from Minnesota, very heavily German-American area. And Lundin uses Virek to write his speeches and to write materials. Um, basically, he calls him a researcher. 
So this becomes a, a sort of simpatico relationship because Virek uh, realizes that he can make Lundin some money. Lundin is just kind of hard up for cash because of some bad business decisions in the 1930s. Um, and so Virek begins writing sort of freelance articles for the Hearst Press and other isolationist-leaning press outlets and collecting the cash and giving half of it to Lundin. So you can imagine that this is personally beneficial to this sort of hard-up U.S. senator. And then Virek begins to expand his operation. So he creates a circle of people on Capitol Hill that are his sympathetic figures that he can write speeches for do research. Then he realizes that he can actually order off-prints of those speeches um, in the American version of Hansard. So it's called the Congressional Record. So he, he orders the speeches that he himself has written, these isolationist, sort of actually heavily anti-British speeches, anti-French speeches, um, orders huge copies of them at cost from the Congressional Printing Office, and then uses congressional franking privilege. So this longstanding tradition that members of Congress can send mail for free to their constituents and starts bombarding millions of Americans with these anti-war speeches in taxpayer-funded envelopes that have the return address of a member of Congress. So it's a massive operation. And Virek actually then expands this and buys a, a publishing house in New Jersey, starts printing up propaganda pamphlets that are written in Berlin, circulating them under fake uh, Anglo-American sounding names. Yeah. <laughs> um, and these are really sometimes vicious anti-Semitic tracts. They're heavily anti-British. They um, focus on supposed British atrocities in India and Ireland and places like that to try to discredit the idea of aiding Britain in the war effort. Um, and so Virek becomes quite successful, certainly in the sense that he is putting this material out to uh, to millions of Americans. He's, and he often is using those who have signed up for isolationist literature already to to target his mailings directly. So in some ways, it's, it's almost a targeted mailing campaign in, in a contemporary sense. I mean, mm. you, could, you could in some way say that that Virek um, almost predicted the direct mail tactics that <laughs> become yeah. common in the late 20th century, but he's, he's very clever about it. Um, he is eventually brought down, as it turns out, by British intelligence. So the British have a large uh, intelligence apparatus around Capitol Hill, and they uh, detect Virek's operation and eventually leak it to the FBI via the press. So Virek is brought down um, in one of the sort of highest profile cases of a German agent actually operating quite effectively on Capitol Hill. And the resulting scandal ends the careers of a lot of these isolationist politicians. So Virek's key contact um, and paymaster was a, a, a German spy master called Herbert von Strempel. I hope I got his name correct there. And Strempel uh, obviously was working with Virek, but he had another operation going on. And he wanted to convince American businessmen to oppose and attack President Roosevelt's re-election campaign in 1940. Can you talk to us about sort of, um, you know, about the importance of this and his operation targeting American businessmen. So this is a key part of what the Germans are up to in the U.S. in 1939-1940. And it goes back to what the Germans' objectives really are. Remember, Hitler is really only interested in the U.S. insofar as he wants to keep it out of the war. And that's because, obviously, in 1917, when the U.S. goes into World War I, that, that turns the tide. Hitler was there, right? He's, he's a First World War soldier when, when they mm. – he's just lying in the hospital when they actually surrender, but he's, he's on, the, on the front lines up until that point. Um, and, and so th they see this as a twofold operation. You have the Virek operation trying to influence elite political opinion. Von Strempel and, and the German ambassadors there's, – there's three of them during this period – um, really focus on American business interests. And this is an important thing to remember because this is really the beginnings of a globalized economy, I would argue. In the 1920s, during the hyperinflation period and, and thereafter, American businesses saw Germany as a growth market. This was a place where 
there was a lot of capital to be acquired for cheap during the hyperinflation period. Um, there was not a lot of industrial capacity left after the First World War. There was actually starvation in 1919. And so this was a, a growth industry. Germans were willing to sell their firms for cut rate financing, essentially. So General Motors, Ford, um, Coca-Cola, there's a litany of companies that I list in the book. They all jumped into the German market with both feet. And so in 1933, when Hitler takes power and begins to impose capital controls on foreign companies, basically not allowing them to take their profits out, except at a disproportionately bad exchange rate, um, essentially these businessmen are stuck. They can't get their money out of Germany. They are forced to reinvest. And this makes them take take some terrible compromise decisions, actually. One of the things that the, the Reich begins doing is telling American companies you can no longer have Jews employed at all in your companies. Um, some firms like General Motors tried to move Jewish employees, especially managers, out of the out of the country into other factories. But in some cases, they just sacked them. And so these American companies are essentially sucked into the Third Reich. And, and one of the more disturbing things I talk about in the book is that virtually none of them walked away from the German market. Um, they were very willing to let those profits pile up in, in Reichsmarks and wait until they could get them out type thing. And in some cases, they got them out after the war ended, which is a, a sort of another troubling part of German or American history. Um, but you can see the appeal of these American businessmen to avoiding a Second World War. If you have a factory in Bremen, you don't want Bremen to be bombed, right? And this is actually... Or if you're, if you're Henry Ford and you have a factory in Cologne that's cranking out trucks and later on aircraft engines, you don't want your capital under threat. And so von Strempel and the German ambassador really begin courting these businessmen as the people who can get to Roosevelt and potentially avert his actions in going into the Second World War. What they misunderstand is that Roosevelt doesn't have a great relationship with business. Um, Roosevelt had always been despised by American, the American corporate sector because he, um, he really, I mean, has, has crossed them in a lot of ways with the New Deal. He's imposed the greatest social safety net the country has ever seen, and that didn't make him any friends in corporate America. And so these businessmen have actually, I would argue, very little influence with the Roosevelt administration. And then you get on later on um, into businessmen who actually see themselves as amateur spies who decide to do some espionage on their own. Um, but even before that begins to take place in 1940, uh, the Germans see the business community as, as probably the most sympathetic to their cause, partially because they can hold their assets hostage. And there's a very interesting account of after the fall of France, the German uh, ambassador or actually a German uh, commercial attaché, I should say, holds a party in New York City in an opulent hotel. I think it's the Boulder of Astoria. He invites all these sort of CEOs of American businesses, and they're toasting the fall of France and the triumph of the Reich. And he makes them a deal. He says, if you defeat Roosevelt in the 1940 election, I will allow you to get your assets out of Germany. And even after, even after we do that, once we win the war, you will have a preferential treatment in the new European order. And you can see how tempting this is for these American businessmen. So another group that Hitler was very keen to influence American society was students. So can you talk to us a little bit about the influence operations directed at them? So one thing we have to remember about Nazism is that it is fundamentally about the young. And this is something that Hitler, Himmler, Goering make clear in their writings, and, and they say it openly. This, this revolution that, that they see themselves running is not about the old. In fact, they say, you know, those folks will be dead soon. This is a revolution of the young. And so they put a lot of, of effort towards influencing young people. And we see this actually in, in authoritarian regimes today. 
I mean, the Chinese government, for instance, puts a lot of effort towards getting its college graduates jobs and things like that because they see them as the future of the party. So, so the Nazis put this great stock in influencing young people. And of course, there have been longstanding foreign exchange programs in American universities, especially elite universities that had the money to run these programs, where American students would spend their junior a semester in their junior year or their entire junior year abroad, perfecting their German skills still a widely spoken language in that period, in science and medicine, um, or you would host German exchange students coming back the other way. So the Nazis immediately see this as, as a great propaganda opportunity. You've got these American future elites coming over. You can indoctrinate them. And so you have these incredible accounts that I, I think I'm one of the first scholars to really look at this. There's been some work done on it, but there's more to be done. Uh, these American 19, 20, 21-year-old, almost all men, because that's who's going to university in this era in the U.S., um, going to Germany and the red carpet being ruled out for them. Um, you know, most American universities are gender segregated. You have German women in universities, not very many, because the Nazis forced them out. But you still have these these women who are actually there. So you can imagine the appeal of that. This is the era of prohibition in some cases, or formerly prohibition in the U.S. So you've got widely available booze, whereas these folks, booze is still sort of coming back after after prohibition. Um, and so it's an exciting place for young people. And, and you you read these accounts of these young men going over and having a great time. And writing back to their college newspaper or to their relatives and saying, this is great. I didn't see any anti-Semitism at all. You know, there, there aren't Jews hanging from the street lamps is one letter that I saw. Um, and of course, that's completely false, right? They're being shown a, a propagandistic version of the Reich. The government is taking a great deal of interest in these people. The anti-Semitism is being concealed from them or many of them probably hold anti-Semitic views themselves. And so the sort of casual discrimination would not be unusual, actually, by some parts of the U.S.'s standards. Um, and so, so this is one of the actually more sort of fun parts of the book for me to research. Right? I went through a lot of these university newspapers um, and found these sort of columns and letters that people had written back. And, and they almost all talk about the same thing. I'll talk about how beautiful the, the girls are. They talk about how fun the parties are. They talk about the alcohol a little bit. Um, and then they talk about how Germany is just a beautiful country and there's no sign of anything bad going on at all. Um, now, this really goes on until 1938 when you get the Kristallnacht, uh, this horrendous outbreak of anti-Semitic violence. And at that point, they can't hide it anymore, right? There's still... Some universities had pulled back their exchange programs by that point because of the physical danger. Um, I found one fascinating account by a young man who... Uh, I can't remember what university he was at, but he had exchanged to Germany... Said he was, you know, in his account as an, as an older person, said he was completely apolitical, um, but was absolutely horrified because he was there during the Kristallnacht, thought about going to try to help the Jewish community in um, the city that he was in, and was told by the American consul that if you do that, you will be deported and, and worse. Um, so, so in 38, when you see that level of violence that gets international attention, the universities begin to pull back their students up until that point. But there are still actually American exchange students in Germany when the British start bombing, uh, the country during the Second World War. Um, and so there's this really interesting undercurrent. And one thing that I really thought about writing the book is what happened to these people after the war? There's relatively few published accounts that I could find from, from, you know, older folks looking back on this time, I, I found some archival material, but these people could, in theory, still be alive today. 
Um, and I would love if any of your listeners know of anyone who was who was in Nazi Germany as a young person. I would I would love to to talk to them about that experience. But I think this is really something that we need a greater understanding of. What was that experience really like, especially for young people? It would be interesting to know what happened to the students who had gone out there, and also about how it affected their worldview as well. Whether they, I don't know, ended up adopting or inheriting anti-Semitic ideas because of those trips or, or you know, or, or whether then they became to an age where they ended up fighting in World War II and how it affected them then. It must have been quite interesting. Absolutely. And we should note as well, there, there was this fascinating phenomenon during the 1930s of people actually moving from the United States and other countries back to the Reich. So this was prioritized by the Nazis to bring back the German diaspora. And some people actually did this. And so we have accounts of people um, giving up their lives in the U.S., going to Nazi Germany, and in some cases being very disappointed by what they found, uh, because because it wasn't the utopia that Nazi propaganda presented it as, obviously. Mm-hmm. And these people who didn't have any relatives or connections in the Reich didn't have any career opportunities necessarily. Um, but in some cases, people did go there and, and enjoyed it and, and agreed with the regime's views. Uh, and that's an area, if, if any of your listeners are interested in this history, I mean, we need a lot more research on folks that, that went back to Germany and fought for the Reich um, yeah. or, or lived out their days there. Yeah, yeah. In some ways, it reminds me of people who've gone out to fight and join the Islamic State, and some of them then, when they finally get out to Syria and Iraq, find it isn't the utopia they thought it was. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, we, we have to recognize that, that authoritarian regimes and extremist movements will always try to do these things. I mean, the more people that move to the Islamic State or to the Third Reich or to any totalitarian state like that, that's that's a propaganda coup. And certainly the Islamic State yeah. played that up very effectively in their propaganda yeah. a few years back. Yeah. Well, let's um, move on to probably the most successful of all the groups, uh, which is America First. And what was interesting in your in your book, you state that from its inception, the America First Committee attracted an array of anti-Semites and right-wing extremists alongside seemingly respectable members of Congress and business leaders. So can you talk to us a bit about America First and sort of who the key players were and what they were hoping to achieve? So America First is actually founded in late 1939, early 1940, around the time of the American presidential election. And what's quite interesting about it, talking about students, is that it is actually formed by students itself. So it's founded by law students at Yale University initially, who are not only opposed to the Roosevelt administration and the New Deal associated with Republican politics, um, but are also deeply worried about what the Second World War will mean for them. And I think there's there's some necessity here to really put ourselves in the shoes of these people. I mean, if you are a 20-year-old man in America in 1940, and the U.S. is thinking about going into the war, you will go fight it and you might be killed in it. And so part of this is is not only a philosophical objection to to the direction that Roosevelt is taking the US but also a personal concern uh, about what this what a second war will mean for for these individuals. So these young people at Yale Law School form an America what they call an America First chapter um, and then it becomes a nationwide movement from there, uh, partially because of the influence of Charles Lindbergh, who was one of the most famous men in the world at that point, and a staunch opponent of Roosevelt and a staunch skeptic of U.S. involvement in the Second World War already. Um, and it sort of expands into this, this mass movement. It has about 800,000 members, so, so huge by the standards of the day, quite possibly the largest um, non-politically affiliated political movement in American history because it is not affiliated with either party. It is nonpartisan, has members, both Democrats and Republicans in it. Um, but 800,000 paid up members is impressive. So, <laughs> so America First really is this, this movement that 
becomes a catch-all, I argue, for Americans who either don't like Roosevelt on a long-standing basis, um, are sort of staunchly opposed to the New Deal itself, or are just skeptical that the U.S. shouldn't go into the war, partially because of the experience of World War I and partially because they just don't think that it's worth it effectively. Um, and, and so in terms of the chronology, I think it's, it's really significant that America First actually emerges after all these other movements we've talked about are discredited or have kind of, of shut down. So Fritz Kuhn goes to jail in 1939 for embezzlement. Pelley goes to, goes to prison around that same time as well, a little bit later. Um, and America First really kicks off in mid to late 1940, right after the presidential election. So what I argue in the book is that it becomes sort of this catch-all group. If you are somebody who is a German-American Bund supporter who thinks that the U.S. should ally with Nazi Germany, let's take an extreme position, America first is kind of your jam, right? Because mm-hmm. they're, they're opposing U.S. involvement in the war. They don't want the U.S. to fight the Nazis. So this is a movement that you can get on board with. Now, even at the time, the America firsters knew that their movement was attracting these disreputable types. Um, this kept getting brought to their attention by the press. They were heavily criticized for it um, by American elected officials. And they said, essentially, that's not true. It isn't happening. We, there's no place in this movement for Bundes. There's no place for Silver Legion supporters. But we know that they were there. Um, one of the thing, interesting things that I looked at in the research for this book was what was really going on with America first chapters on the ground. So outwardly, they wanted to present themselves as just anti-interventionist. We don't want to go into the war. When you look at what they're actually saying in meetings and what their members are actually doing, there's all sorts of other stuff going on here. I mean, you, you have these insinuations of anti-Semitism, these sort of dark conspiracy theories, um, you know, not unlike what we see today on social media and things of that sort. And so I think America First becomes this umbrella organization for all of these folks who oppose U.S. entry into the war, who hate Franklin Roosevelt, who hate Britain in some cases, um, or, or just really like the Third Reich. Um, it's for them to politically organize in the late 1930s, early 1940s, really. Um, and so, of course, they are discredited eventually largely by Charles Lindbergh, their great hero. But for this brief sort of 18-month period before Pearl Harbor, America First um, is being discussed even potentially as an American third party. The Gallup organization does polling on how well would a anti-war party do running against both the Democrats and the Republicans. And in some parts of the U.S., it would have won seats in Congress, most yeah. likely. So this is a really important movement. Yeah. If you don't mind me asking, what are your thoughts on uh, former President Donald Trump's use of America First as his political slogan? Yeah, no, this is this is fascinating. And again, this goes back to, to when I wrote started writing this book. Um, you know, back then, this is before any of that had happened. And so mm. talking about America First was a very, was a very different context. Um, you know, I, I do reference this slightly in the book because I thought it was inappropriate to not comment on it. But, you know, I, I don't really know what to make of it. I'm, I'm not sure we know whether Trump knows much of the history of the America First movement. I mean, you would think that someone in his, in his 2016 campaign did. Um, you know, I, I think it's something for, for American voters to decide. I don't know how many American voters are familiar with the history of this organization. But I think, you know, if, if we want to look at it with sort of a skeptical lens, we could say that this is some, this is, you know, a dog whistle, right, to a certain part of, of American political history that some small number of people might be familiar with and might look favorably upon. Um, you know, one, one avenue of research I'm pursuing now um, is looking at the post-war history of the American firsters. And a lot of them actually become involved in isolationist politics later on, as you would expect. Um, and this is kind of a, a deviation, so we won't go too far in that direction. But they become involved in the Robert Taft campaign in 1852, which is the last sort of hurrah for isolationists. 
And then in 1964, they get involved a little bit with the Barry Goldwater campaign, even though Goldwater is not an isolationist. So there is a post-war history to these movements. And, you know, I think an open question is whether the Trump campaign deliberately tried to associate itself with that history or whether it's just a catchy slogan. I think it's hard to know. Yeah. It would be interesting to know whether the influence of some of those people into contemporary conspiracy theory culture today. Well, absolutely. And, and you know, one thing that I noticed a lot from these groups is the conspiracy theory is really at the heart of this mm. ideology. And you see this with, with Nazism itself, right? The Hitler's essential claim is there's an international conspiracy of Jews to destroy Germany. And you see this with people like Mosley as well. So, yeah, I mean, conspiracy theory is at the heart of a lot of this. And if you, I mean, for fascism to to sort of make internal sense, there has to be an international conspiracy that it's fighting against. And so that's what really concerns me with the conspiracy theories we're seeing today on social media and things like that. Because once you go down that rabbit hole mindset, um, you know, it's natural to start thinking about what what's the solution to this alleged problem, and that's when where really strange stuff begins to take hold. I think for a lot of a lot of people. Mm. Obviously, we're partly a show about espionage, so I wanted to have a chat about the number of sort of German spies who are operating in America uh, during this period. So, can you talk to us a little bit about sort of Hitler's espionage operations in America? So, the, the Third Reich attempted to engage in, in espionage on a level that really the world had not seen any other time than the First World War. Mm. So, this is a, a part of history that you know really we're only able to research now because of the closure of records and things of that sort. As many of many of your listeners will certainly know. Um, so, you know, we have to think back and put ourselves back in that mentality of, of Hitler and the inner circle to understand what goes on here. So, again, the goal is to keep the U.S. out of the war at all possible costs. But if the U.S. does go into the war, obviously being able to curtail U.S. industrial activity would be key to this. So the Germans have been somewhat successful at this during World War I with, with the Black Tom case and espionage activity and sabotage at that, at that level, but not nearly as successful as they had wanted to be. So... Uh, during the, the early sort of years of the Third Reich, Hitler begins increasing um, German intelligence activity really all around the world. He builds a massive intelligence yeah. network in Latin yeah. America, which we're still sort of unraveling in some senses. Um, but in the U.S., he begins, it, it's more initially about getting political intelligence. So George Sylvester Virac becomes one of the most important intelligence assets on Capitol Hill. Although, interestingly, after the war... Or actually, even during the war, the FBI does an assessment of what Virek has been telling the German foreign ministry and decided he hasn't given them anything useful that couldn't have been found in the newspapers. So, <laughs> so the, the only thing that he actually gave them that was interesting was um, some intelligence about industrial bottlenecks, which is kind of interesting. Um, but the rest of it, and we know this, I mean, this is, this is the classic story of intelligence gathering even during the Cold War, right? That Soviet spies would sometimes pick up the early edition of the New York Times and report back these incredible intelligence coups to Moscow, which would be amazed <laughs> when they predicted what was in the paper the next day, right? Yeah, and yeah. so that's what a lot of this is in the era before modern communication, these um, you know, German spies, they did actually at one point have uh, shortwave radio ability in the U.S., although the FBI um, later on actually uses that and turns it against the German intelligence, uh, against the Abwehr. Um, but a lot of this is just information that could have been acquired by talking to people in, in bars, and probably was, uh, bars, reading the newspaper, um, having friends on Capitol Hill, things of that sort. Um, but there were a few more serious intelligence operations. And so... One of the essential techniques the Germans used was was taking German-Americans who were fairly recent immigrants and either threatening their families that were still in the Reich or promising them some sort of reward. So classic ways to exploit sources. 
Um, and these were people that they then either instructed to go work in defense production facilities or, or they already worked there and were told to pass on plans of battleships, information about armaments that were in development. And most of these we think were unsuccessful. I mean, you know, it, it's still difficult to know what went on here because of the classification of, of documents. But um, the one intelligence coup we know the Germans did pull off was stealing what was called the Norden bombsite. And this was a bomb site that was built for American bombers that would improve the accuracy of dropping these unguided munitions from thousands of feet in the air and actually hitting the target you wanted. This was not easy. The Norton bomb site made these bombs much more accurate. Uh, the plans for the bomb site were actually stolen by a German American that worked in, in the Norton plant and were transmitted uh, via microfilm to Germany in, in a cane that he carried on board <laughs> a, a boat and went back to Germany. Um, and then actually, and this is fascinating, actually assembled a uh, bomb site for the Germans themselves. So what's interesting about that is that the, 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 while the Germans had the bomb site, they did not roll it out to their bombers in time to take part in the Battle of Britain. So when it actually would have been the most useful, the Germans had deployed it yet. So undoubtedly, this helped the German war effort, um, and it was a major intelligence coup for them, but it was their largest coup. The rest of the German intelligence apparatus was surprisingly inept, and this is certainly not the stereotype that we have of, of you know, these German Nazi spies with, you know, monocles hanging out in, uh, you know, CD clubs and things like that. that. That actually did go on. But most of the intelligence they transmitted was um, easily acquirable through open source intelligence and things, you know, sending the newspaper and things of that sort. There's a, a quite funny letter I found from J. Edgar Hoover um, to, I think it was to someone in the administration, um, talking about sort of German intelligence activity. And, and Hoover, I mean, we can talk more about J. Edgar Hoover, and he's a fascinating guy, obviously, in a number of <laughs> but he had this massively overinflated sense of what the FBI actually knew. In some cases, it, it did lead to, to failures. The Virat case, for instance, the FBI had no idea what was going on there until the British found out. But um, he writes this hilarious letter to a member of the administration saying that the only intelligence coup the Germans had managed to pull off um, was that they had a male spy seduce two male privates at a base in San Francisco to find out information about a rifle that he that could have found by reading the newspaper. So probably the only effect they actually had was they got the two soldiers thrown in and discharged from the military, presumably for homosexuality, which was a crime in the U.S. military at that point. So, you know, German intelligence was was pretty inept in that sense. And Hoover, I think, was was quite right that there, there wasn't a lot that they were getting that wasn't publicly available. Uh, but where were you doing? I mean, these were the spies themselves. Where they were, did have more success was in getting information about the sailings of convoys, about military troop movements, especially during the Battle of the Atlantic. I mean, that probably did lead to American shipping being lost and, and soldiers and sailors being killed in that sense. But that often didn't come from spies. That often came from um, people who were waitresses in uh, cocktail clubs and things like that. And we know there were people who, who sold information to German spies um, or gave it to them because they were ideologically committed who weren't actually on the German payroll at all, which is troubling in yeah. some senses on its own. Yeah, yeah. There was one, um, there's a very dramatic sabotage plot that happened in 1942 that led to the US government sort of taking espionage possibly a little bit more seriously. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? So 1942 is Operation Pastorius, which is, I would argue, one of the most vicious sabotage campaigns really ever launched by the Third Reich. Mm -hmm. The idea of Pastorius was that they would take uh, some German Americans who had repatriated to the Reich 
um, several of whom had actually served in the National Guard in the United States and had lived in the U.S. for, for quite a period of time. They would take them, train them up in sabotage, put them on U-boats, drop them off in, um, in the New York area and in Florida with explosives. They would bury the explosives on the beach, meld into American society. So essentially try to go back to their former lives. And they established covers for them and things of that sort, gave them American cash, American clothing, until the signal was given, at which time they would dig up the explosives and blow up dams, bridges, uh, military production facilities with the express intention of causing maximum bloodshed. So this was not even industrial sabotage. This was an attempt to bring the war into the heart of the United States. Um, it's really terrifying. Um, we now know, it's interestingly, uh, this was only revealed. This actually came out after I published my book, so unfortunately I couldn't include it. But the U.S. government was tipped off to this plot by the British, by the Enigma intercepts. So uh, they transmitted this um, using highly secure means to the U.S., and so they were on the lookout for these saboteurs. But even with that forewarning, the U.S. government was caught. It appears greatly by surprise by the arrival of these saboteurs. Um, the first U-boat dropped off a team off the uh, sort of New York, New Jersey area. I think they actually landed in Long Island. Um, and unfortunately for the saboteurs, fortunately for the American government, uh, they were stumbled upon by a Coast Guardsman who was patrolling the beach. Um, and these German saboteurs who were sort of awkwardly burying these giant chests of explosives claimed, claimed to be fishermen who had been <laughs> lost in the fog and, and paid the guy some ridiculous amount of money to go away. So thinking that this would actually work, right? So of course the Coast Guardsman yeah. went back to his station, called called the FBI. Um, but interestingly, at that point, then one of the saboteurs lost his nerve um, and went and called the FBI himself, and initially just called FBI headquarters. Um, and the agent on the other end sort of laughed at him and hung up the phone. He said he was a German saboteur. <laughs> so. So yeah. a little bit awkward in that <laughs> sense. Um, but at that point, the plot began to break down because some, two of the saboteurs thought that, that they were doomed, knew that the government was onto them. So they tried to turn themselves in, actually went to Washington, D.C., uh, eventually got in touch with FBI headquarters successfully and turned in the rest of their plot. Um, and so in, in a, a feat of actually very impressive sleuthing, um, the FBI rounded up, I think it was six, six or eight, uh, I think it was eight saboteurs, rounded up all of them within a few days, including the team that landed completely separately in Florida. And they did this on the basis of the, the cooperative saboteurs um, who was able, were able to give them as much information as they could remember about these guys from training, even though they didn't know their actual identities or the names that they would really be operating under in the U.S. So it, it was a, a stroke of, of great luck. Um, and this case eventually ends up in, in um, most of the saboteurs being executed by the U.S. government, um, by electric chair, and then two of the two who had cooperated um, having their death sentences commuted, and they were eventually sent back to Germany after the war. But it was really a troubling episode. I mean, when Franklin Roosevelt finds out about a plot of this nature on U.S. soil, uh, he's deeply concerned, and that's why he personally pushes for these saboteurs to be given the death penalty to set an example mm. for others. And we know from the German records that Hitler is is really shocked that FDR has has the, the stomach really to send these guys to a pretty swift death, and at that point forbids the Abwehr from trying to land more saboteurs in the U.S. because he feels that even in the midst of war, it's an unnecessary loss of life that these plots are so likely to be unsuccessful that. He doesn't want to risk these, these good Nazis as he sees them anymore. So, yeah, Pastorius is this incredibly troubling moment. Um, and I think, you know, the U.S. government makes the right decision in throwing the book at these guys. They had to set an example, I think, that um, this is not acceptable. And we see the same thing now with, with terrorism prosecutions. I mean, you can see this as an attempted terrorist plot. 
And the government takes this seriously and, and prosecutes these very seriously, you know, for much the same reasons um, as, as mm. the Pastorius case. Yeah, yeah, no, it's understandable. Well, just, uh, well, thank you so much for all that. We're getting close to wrapping up. So I was wondering, reflecting on everything we've sort of discussed today, what do you feel we can kind of learn from this part of American political history? I think there's a few lessons. Um, I think part of it is that, that every democracy has to always be on its guard. And we see this time and time again. I know many of your, your listeners um, who, who hear the podcast um, you know, regularly reflect on this probably a lot. But it is the role of the intelligence services to protect democracy. And, and that was what the FBI and MI5 and MI6 did quite successfully in this period, was they were able to unravel these plots that, while some of them were comical and we can laugh about them now, might have actually paid yeah. dividends for a, a very dangerous and very scary totalitarian state in the midst of, a, of the most serious war that's ever been fought in that sense. Um, so I think that we, you know, democracies have to be on their guard. That's something we have to be constantly reminded of. I think the other, the other lesson that I've reflected on a lot since writing the book is the need for democracies and political parties to police themselves internally. You know, we talk about people like, like Gerald Winrod, this, this right wing Nazi sympathizing Senate candidate in Georgia or in, sorry, in Kansas, um, who nearly won a seat in the U.S. Senate and had the Republican party not stepped in. We see this all the time. He's only one example. Um, but America's political parties in this period systematically pushed these people out. Um, nobody, no political party tried to court Charles Lindbergh as a candidate for any office. No one tried to court the Gerald B. Winrods of the world. Nobody tried to bring these people into the mainstream political tent. And there was discussions about it. I mean, you can see the appeal. There, there were people who supported these causes that could translate into votes. But, you know, I think that it is impinging in, in upon all of us who live in democratic systems to... Um, remember what the bounds of that discussion looks like, right? That the democracy requires constant vigilance, not only against foreign threats, but also against domestic threats as well. And sometimes those, those things go hand in glove. In this period, the domestic extremists were very much in thrall of a foreign movement. And I think we see some similar analogies yeah. today. But I think all of us who live in democratic systems have to constantly remember that and constantly be on our guard against these types of, of sort of influences. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for that. Where can listeners sort of find out more about you and your work? Certainly, I have a profile on um, on the web. I have a website, bradleywhart.com. Uh, the book is Hitler's American Friends, Third Reich Supporters in the United States, available from all fine retailers uh, online and elsewhere. Brilliant. Well, Bradley, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. really appreciate it. It's really been really great. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies.